Welcome to Fourth Time. No, I fucked it up. I accidentally peaked a bit. All right. <clears throat> yeah, god damn it. Welcome to Fourth Time's the Charm, the podcast where every week we have a new podcast. Don't, my don't, name don't is Matt. This, Matt. Don't I, I am this joined by my producer, Ben. Well, ben, gonna, how are you doing today? We're going to re record it. Were we re recording? We just hit the intro. That was perfect. That was smooth. That was sexy. That was hot. That was as good as 2006's The Plague by Clive Barker, okay, even well, though he didn't well, write it. We're, we're getting to Clive Barker's The Plague. Everyone, we had a big weekend. We yeah. watched a movie which we were not <laughs> really expecting to review for five stars under 50 and it we weren't blew, excited either <laughs> we weren't particularly excited and it blew our minds so much we've had to completely change our recording schedule and we have to talk about our first time two in a row yep. our first second in a row five stars under 50 we're going to talk about the plague but first we got to talk about the plague that you have met welcome to the covid club baby yeah we shouldn't be happy uh, I'm not. I'm really sick. I can't smell anything. I'm tired all the time. Yeah, uh, I'm, but I'm, but I'm, there, I'm sorry, Matt. There is an advantage to having COVID. Do you know what that is, Ben? Plenty what? of time to watch TV miniseries on Netflix. Woo! <laughs> um, so what you been I, watching? So my wife and I watched the entirety of Squid Game. Um, and there's really, you haven't seen that yet, right? I haven't. Is it as good as they say it is? Yeah, the hype's real. That's really all I can say about it. Everyone has said everything about that show. There's, you know, four hour breakdowns of it on YouTube. It's really good. It's beautifully shot. It's captivatingly emotional. Um, it has kind of the same sentimentality that a lot of like Korean horror kind of thrillers, mysteries have. Um, and it's it pulls itself off and everything makes sense, you know, which was nice because I thought it was going to get all heady and it didn't. Cool. Now, the the show that I was almost more excited to watch because it got a big bump of initial praise and then got nothing after a while, at least for Those my... Those are the gems. Yeah, these are the like it Because it, <clears throat> Squid Game and it came out at the same time, everyone went... These two shows are great. And then Squid Game became like an international hit. And this movie just kind of faded, uh, which was Mike Flanagan's new horror project, Midnight Mass. Now, before we jump into Midnight Mass, Ben, have you ever seen any of uh, Mike Flanagan's other work? I, I probably have, but I didn't know them as being a Mike Flanagan work. So just to quickly go over it, uh, he he directed probably what i what i consider the most surprisingly good movie of 2016 which was uh ouija origin of evil um that movie was great i didn't realize it was a prequel to the uh the 2015 ouija movie uh because that movie was lame and this movie was fucking awesome uh, but he that, yeah that I, I was about to say i thought that movie was lame but it was actually the first one and the second one just i don't think anyone reviewed because the first one sucked exactly and we saw the second one which was the origin of evil one on accident not realizing it was a sequel to that garbage movie and we're exceedingly entertained um he also got a lot of attention for directing 2000 i think also 2016 
Yeah, 2016's Hush, which is on Netflix as well. Um, and I know people talked about Gerald's game. Uh, we have a couple friends who liked that. Uh, but he got his big, his big bump in the 2018-2019 combo of being the creator, showrunner, writer, and director of most of The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Oh, did, yeah. Did you ever actually dive into that, Ben? I, like, got into it. TV shows are harder for me to watch. Okay. Just because I can watch horror movies on my own. I can find time because, yeah. you know, it's easier to watch something that's, 90 minutes yeah <laughs> or whatever when you have a fiance who does not like horror stuff so something like that i would love to watch but it's just a lot harder to figure in you gotta navigate especially yeah. for a show because mike flanagan's very good at like unsettling atmosphere and not jump scares but making like not jump scares feel like jump scares right uh so your your fiance would fucking hate haunting of hill house she probably wouldn't she probably would not like midnight mass either uh but he also uh before we get to midnight mass he also did which i thought was really good even though it was a really divisive film was the sequel to the uh to the feature length version of the shining dr sleep um which had some really cool stuff going on and i think mike flanagan really benefited from being used to show running a long project because he kind of pulled off the narrative through line that made the movie even worth watching and you didn't see dr sleep right ben no i didn't see dr sleep you but I, you I, love the shining right you're well, a big yeah, fan especially know, in the miniseries but the, but the book i remember being not up to par the doctor sleep book or the or the shining book the doctor sleep book so i wasn't super enthused over the show yeah so apparently the the movie uh diverge diverges from it like quite hard that's good um, to know to to make it good that's that was like the because I, I haven't read the the doctor sleep book but what i heard about and people talking about how it was different from the book it was like it, it was it took a lot of the the fat and just got rid of all of it and then refilled it with like Mike Flanagan's own wacky nonsense. Right. Um but his newest project and I think his most captivating, I found it an improvement on The Haunting of Hill House in regards to storytelling and execution was the show Midnight Mass. Now, Midnight Mass is a show very very upfront about a isolated community on an island um that has like miraculous and and incredible events occur after a really young um priest comes and takes over the parish in the town and it's framed in this really weird and interesting way and without spoiling the show there is an undertone of a traditional horror genre that it uses this structure and this world to tell. And I think honestly, the one of the most captivating stories I've seen in a while. Now, if you have any kind of trauma or like dislike of like very religious, especially very Christian mentality stuff, this show might not be for you because it does lean very heavily and very, very effectively 
into the fact that one of the main characters is a priest and uses this kind of isolated, insulated community to create, which uh, Chris Stuckman, uh, it was a YouTube reviewer, put very well, a, a true cult mentality put onto film. Um, because of the way this insulated community just could be kind of becomes this echo chamber within itself. So here, let me ask you, is, is yeah. this a Rebecca approved show? Like, is it a horror show or, or is it something that like it? So it, it has horror elements. The atmosphere is very like heavy. Um, it definitely has like a supernatural tone to it, but it supernatural it isn't stuff s- is fine. Like like it isn't scary. Is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's not. It's it's scary in the same way that that seventy three Wicker Wicker Man is scary. Okay. For fans of the show, uh, you know I love nineteen seventy three's Wicker Man. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I genuinely consider it a filmmaking masterpiece. Um, and it's a, it's a horror movie that is for people of a specific mindset. This show does that, but the main character is a disillusioned uh, religious person who is now an atheist returning to his town full of this isolated, insulated community of very devout Christians. Um, and the magic becomes real and the whole island uh, begins to idolize and become very like literalist. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I do very briefly want to get into a little bit of spoiler territory. If you'll allow me, Ben, unless, unless you want to hold off so that you can watch this. I mean, there... I, I, I think I can swing watching this number one and number two, you've been talking for seven minutes now. Yeah. I told so... you I had an eight minute monologue. I didn't know you literally had an eight minute monologue, Matt. We've, We've talked about this. It's a All good right. show. We need to watch it. I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting hey, you off. Hey, watch it. There, there's a... You know, I'll leave it there. Well, for me this weekend, it was uh, sort of exciting. Met up with some friends and went to the local Rose Bowl Oktoberfest, where I was the world's best designated driver. Ooh. Followed that up by going to the Republic of Lucha store which is one of my favorite stores in southern california it is a lucha store owned by ray phoenix and pentagon jr famous luchadors are they are they like regularly there yeah like the last movie screening we went to phoenix was there so they're generally there a lot they were not at what we went to tonight with or that night which was a movie screening of The Batwoman, a Spanish uh, language movie from 1968. And our it, fans, our fans of Instagram, saw you probably watching this, but they didn't get to see your your final review. So, what was your kind of what's your full opinions on this movie? I've never seen it, so I'm very interested. So, this was the second movie we watched. They always play these schlocky movies, and pretty much the only rule is it has to have lucha libre in it. Of some sort. So a lot of the movies are based on the old monster movies that would feature El Santo, Blue Panther. This one was about the gorgeous Batwoman who drives around in a bikini. And then when it's time to wrestle, she puts on 
giant overstuffed gray suit gear so you can't tell that she's actually another woman wait so she's pretending to be a man no no it's they they just got a double in there because apparently the actress didn't know how to wrestle oh even better it's definitely one of those you know red letter media best of the worst type movies what what year was it made 1968 uh, oh yeah. That woman right. was trying to stop a man from lobotomizing wrestlers and stealing their pineal glands to put inside Whoa. a fish and transform the fish into a fish monster and then they would create quote hundreds of fish monsters which would lead to him taking over the world. That he is literally that is- said I will make I will make many of them. I will make dozens. I will make hundreds. And then I will have hundreds of fishmen. And I was like, well, that's that's achievable, you know. But he can only use the pineal glands of wrestlers because they are the only ones strong enough to be able to make it through the process. Yeah, That, That is systematically a prequel to both WrestleManiac and from beyond and i love it it it's really slow in the middle third but the last third when you have the guy in the full-on fishman suit waving his wings around and the the choice choice english dubbed audio really just makes this a chef's kiss movie it, that, it, that, it's, that it's also concerning. great watching it in southern california the whole movie is shockingly progressive very woman forward if not featuring a scantily clad woman the whole time and then at the end she's just she's telling them how she saved their lives and she screams and backs up and says oh my god there's a mouse and the two men go women right and it goes to the credits oh fuck yeah there was an audible groan this is why I don't crowd. watch movies from like I have like a. It was so close, like I'll Matt. watch pre I'll watch pre fifties and post and post sixties. It was like so from like nineteen fifty to nineteen sixty nine. It was very difficult for you to make a movie. I'll watch if you just take out the last line of the movie. That's it. Except singing in the rain, Matt. Singing in the rain. Singing is the forever. yes. Yeah. Well, there there's a few gems there there in that in the like the fifties. 40s to like 50, 60, 65, 68 era. And it's, there are some tonal choices that just make it difficult to get through. And you, that, that same thing can be true about another decade that we're going to talk about today. And that's the early 2000s. No, we're not there yet, Matt. I'm, I'm oh, not, I'm not that was a good yet. transition. The Lucha store in general, I really like because. They have these weird photo galleries of Pentagon and Ray Phoenix taking photos with Thunder Rosa naked women. They sell lucha masks, which are actually from the luchadors themselves. And some of them have even been match worn. That's really fucking cool. Yeah, they have them on a display case, which is beautiful. And what they had on display that I thought was really cool this time around is Ray Phoenix is apparently a painter. Sure. And so he's made a series of paintings in very classical Mexican style. So not very, they're, they're not traditionally good, but I find them appealing in a strange way, if that makes sense. Are they kind of like Clive Barker's artwork? We're, we're not quite there yet, Matt. 
Well, even then, no, but like, we'll get to it. But does it, is it reminiscent of that kind of style where it's not like a traditional, like Picasso or like a Monet well, or I like, well, I even sent you some photos. Of yeah. It. And, but uh, our, our beautiful guests haven't seen the photos, the charmers out there. They're very oblong-esque. There's okay. not a lot of traditional painting technique used in there. But yeah. it, but I look at the paintings and it makes me think. So you know, hey, what, what is the job of a painting if not to do that? In many cases, at least. Yeah, it's either so, for rich people to launder money or to evoke emotion. Well, these are too cheap for him to be laundering money. But exactly. in the future, who knows? <laughs> yeah, there, there was thirty one years. I, there was one I really liked called like the the first journey or whatever. Which yeah. is them in this weird oblong pickup truck driving down a road, and Ooh. you have Phoenix with his Saramiedo hand and Phoenix with his Animo thing that no one remembers as his catchphrase, but I do. Does how much does he sell his originals for? So they retailed for like three fifty to four hundred dollars, and that's not bad. It's not, and a lot of them haven't sold, so they're on discount. So I. I really sort of wanted the pickup truck one, and there was another one I really liked called the uh, called the Lonely Chair. Ooh! And it's just a chair with a bunch of hands moving okay. around it. And I'm like, this is a wrestler making a painting about a chair. Like, there's something, there's something beautiful about that. Yeah, there's something so pure about the, how that sounds. Like, I want one of those paintings now. Yeah, it's you just need about two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars, and it can be yours. That's achievable. I know. It's I really want one. Can, the more I can talk you buy about, them, the more I can want Can you one. buy them online? You can buy them online. Well, hey, what's his website? Everyone, everyone, go pull money together and let's buy all of Ray Phoenix's paintings. Let's yeah, make this uh, man's year. I, I believe it's republicoflucha.com. Hell yeah! They're all on discount. Well, they're. So they're full price online, but they're discounted in store. Buy them online. Get that man that money. A- AEW is clearly losing in the ratings, so they need it. Oh, yeah. That's the other big news. <laughs> For all my wrestling fans, AEW that's... Rampage essentially tied Friday Night SmackDown in the 18 to 49 adults demographic on cable. This is the first time a competitor to WWE has out performed them in any ratings metric in 22 years this is huge for the wrestling business this is truly transformative and amazing not only that it was AEW rampage going up against wwe's four biggest stars i would say yeah the face the faces of their company and AEW put together a traditional normal show like they always do so there's this no is like no counter booking this is like taking the patriots on a super bowl putting them up against a preseason detroit lions and the lions win like yeah, what I, the hell this shouldn't have happened there it was... hasn't happened it was it, yeah. it was i was telling everybody when it was in the everybody. lead up to this this was going to be fun, but there was no chance that they would approach SmackDown in any metric, and yet they did. This is massive. 
they could put a show up against Monday Night Raw, and I think that they would beat them in the ratings handily. Wow, that's that's aggressive. I I, I think within a few weeks they well, would absolutely do that. They've already been beating them in ticket sales for certain venues. There's the I don't remember the exact no, venue. No, no, not not just in any venues in Long Island, New York. Yeah, the the. <laughs> backyard of wwe they're outselling them and there's different ticket prices there's lots varying there well they even but they the even put roman that, on the card and they still haven't sold out the that fact show. that this is even a discussion oh is yeah indescribably amazing for the wrestling business i've been waiting for something like this since march 2001 and here we are 20 years later and it's finally happening well, and what and what happened a last time? A quarter century in the making. Yeah, and what happened last time is this pushed WWE to, be, to create its best product ever, right? It has the last to. time, it, it already has been. Yeah, you look because at last Friday SmackDown. That's an example of it. Of them actually being pushed to make a good product. Of them actually trying, yeah. But the issue now is that they have twenty years of <laughs> muck and grime that they're going to have to sift themselves out of. On top of the fact that they're a pretty morally bankrupt company. And AEW is a company that so far has a pretty dang spotless track record. They're young, but yeah, you're correct. Right. They're, un- they're unblemished I'm not saying yet. it's fair, but I'm saying that, you know, it's a, it's a fact, especially in the current climate. You know, no one at AEW has killed their wife, child, and themselves. No one at <laughs> AEW has died of heart failure from steroid abuse. No one in AEW murdered their girlfriend and then had the CEO of the company cover it up, only for it to be divulged 30 years later. Wait, what the fuck? What was that one? There was Jimmy Snuka murdered his girlfriend, Nancy Argentino. There's been no accusations of pedophilia at AEW. There's been no steroid scandals, because no one gives a shit anymore, but still... (laughs) There's been no drug overdoses, no anything. I mean, my God, no one at AEW took Brody Lee's widow, put her on screen and said, can you please uh, confirm for us that AEW is not the ones responsible for this? Oh, yeah. 24 hours after Brody Lee died. Well, I, I mean, multiple, multiple wrestlers and, you know, personalities in the field have pointed to how AEW handled the passing of Brody Lee as like a linchpin for them deciding to work with that company. After because Brody yeah, Lee no died, one has no one's seen a wrestling company handle death that well. Ever. After Brody Lee died, nobody came out on TV and for heat said, Brody Lee's not up there in heaven. Brody Lee's down there in hell. Oh yeah, that was the that was the um the Guerrero angle, right? That was the Eddie Guerrero angle, and Eddie infamously left Mexico. One of the reasons was because he didn't want to do an angle that revolved around the death of his partner, Art Barr. Just to be turned into an angle himself. That's right, but Eddie would have wanted it. Eddie would have wanted it. Eddie, Eddie, Eddie would have wanted an angle about how he died and how he actually went to hell and how his family are now going to like take up his mantle. He would have wanted that. Now, is that you speaking or is that Vince? That's right, pal. And on that <laughs> note, we're going to go into five stars under 50. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we have a Hall of Famer on our hands. Are you ready, Matt? Oh, I am ready, Ben. Then let's go cue up the fucked up 20th Century Fox intro. Welcome to Five Stars Under 50, where we take a look at the underappreciated movies in your Amazon Prime subscription library. Today, we are going to look at a movie that's actually on Amazon Prime twice, but we saw the one that only had about 50 reviews. So we're going no, with that it one. Had, it had two. It had two reviews when we watched it. Yeah, it had two reviews when we watched it. Now it has five. Two of those are ours. It is Clive Barker's The Plague. Now, now this movie is very, very special because the quest and the objective of Five Stars Under 50 is to discover movies that are forgotten, lost, uncared about, and finding those gems. Unlike the last, ha- the house at the end of the street, which is a piece of garbage, we're trying to find those movies that few people have seen but are truly worthy of veneration, of cult classic status, of being watched by more than 50 people. And by God, Ben, by the powers of the universe surrounding us, we have found one. We have found a true, a true five-star under 50 movie. I I, I feel like we have sort of a, an existing hall of fame mm-hmm. in a way of these sorts of five stars under 50 movies yeah prince of darkness is at the top no prince of darkness doesn't count because i don't agree to that <laughs> the, great. there there is in the mouth of madness john carpenter yep there's night of the demons yes oh yes which which that one is probably a bit more popular than five stars under 50 requires but like that's Definitely. how we found it so it's it's it, in it's in the same it's in the same it's genre in, of how Ben and I, f- yeah it's it's part of the process because the reason Ben and I do this is because we do a movie night for about two years now since COVID, and at some point in the evening, we stop watching movies and Ben and I just start recommending movies that we found on Amazon to each other for you know anywhere between twenty minutes to an hour, and this last friday and in the past that exact same thing happened that's how we watched night of the demons that's how we watched so many other movies we've fallen that's in love with over the, the years last, that's how we watched the 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 house at the end of the street yeah yeah that's we, we me and ben now have a whole watch list of too many movies on amazon that we haven't watched it just because we've been like oh we should watch this one no but what about this one now let me tell you about this one because there are so many. It's like the independent um, uh, published section on Amazon's Kindle list. You don't know what's there. You're not always sure what you're going to find, but sometimes you find a movie like Children of the Night. A school teacher teams up with a priest to stop a town against overrun vampires. It's an hour and 30 minutes. It came out in 1991, has 34 reviews. Now, you might be the type of person that stop and go, we're not watching that or we're watching that. Ben and I do the same thing. And then we jump to an hour and a half later and we're still looking at other different movies to watch. Yeah, there's, 
I, I, I think that even though it's probably best to watch movies that are critically acclaimed, I do Fuck that. like finding movies which have been sort of lost to time a yeah. bit. And this is a movie which I don't think really had a chance coming out of the gate looking at how it reviewed. Oh, no, it's way ahead of its time. I think this, in a way it, 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 it really is. It's, this, this is a movie that, that should have been made by someone like Mike Flanagan. Well, see, I, I disagree with that because I think it was already made well as it was. I do oh. think that this type of movie belongs in that same sort of genre, though. Yeah, well, I think what, what I was trying to say, I think what we have here is a perfect movie. I don't think this movie should be remade. Yeah. But if if you were to take the plot and structure of this film and reshoot it today with all modern materials and all and modern presentation, it would be just as good and probably not a five stars under 50 movie because it would be a big hit. Yeah. A, a big hit for, for like with. an indie horror movie. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I, and, and despite all of the movies Ben and I watch, and we, I love Clive Barker. Ben likes Clive Barker, and he's important to the world of horror. Neither of us had ever heard of this movie. No, I've, this I've never. Is, and I love James Vanderbeek. Uh, the movie starring James Vanderbeek from 2006, straight to DVD, directed by. I mean, I would like to focus on a bit here. Yeah. Hal Masonberg, written and directed by Hal Masonberg. I've done a bit of research on this cat, and uh, he's he's definitely interesting, Matt. Okay, well, okay. So when we were watching this movie and and going into, we we were initially very interested in how the movie got made and like what surrounded. Since we had never heard of it, and it had Clive Barker's name on it, and despite all those stories, I think this man. <laughs> is a bit more interesting because as as ben and i discussed his imdb page looks like what we expected ben's imdb page to look at if he had stayed in film yeah his imdb page is a lot of assistant type work and then just randomly he directed two movies one documentary uh called jazz in the modern era or jazz night a confidential journey or sorry, yes, uh, Jazz Knight's a confidential journey. I, w- I was looking at a different name on his blog, and then he was also the director of this, which was his directorial debut. And, and in terms debut. of fiction work, this was his only uh, non-documentary movie he ever made. So a one and done. Wrote and directed it. Matt, what do you think he does for a living? Now, yes. Oh, I have no, um, is he an administrative assistant? No, come on, Matt. Give me, give me an honest thing. Come on. Uh, well, okay. So, so looking at, he worked, he worked in like a lot of art departments and production work. So I would say he probably works for a a film studio, maybe doing like talent acquisition, or he might like, he might help work with like recruiting like assistants and art department people according to his website houseworkshops.com okay. i have been a casting session director oh! for over 20 years all right uh he uh he it seems like he mainly works in commercials okay and he has hal masonberg's commercial acting workshops where he coaches actors and uh 
helps them essentially try to uh, land gigs. So if if you'd like some testimonials, Matt. Yeah, hit me. Uh, we have Anna Kaja, who's been on Criminal Minds, The Newsroom, oh. True Blood, The Closer, uh, Weeds, Numbers. Sure, sure. There's Danny Strong, who's been on a number of TV shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Seabiscuit. He's an award-winning writer and producer on the HBO miniseries Recount and Game Change. Um, He was also the writer and producer on Lee Daniels' The Butler, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, and the (laughs) hit TV series Empire. Yeah, I just I just I think he's won two. Is that are those two Golden Globes he's won? Oh, he won two Emmys. This is a two-time Emmy-winning man that came directly from from the fruits of the labor of the great Hal Masonberg. And then we also have Renee Marino, who was on Jersey Boys. Uh, I thought when you said Renee Marino, that sounded exactly like a professional wrestler's name. So like so he has an actual pedigree of people who've worked with him. Yeah. Um clearly. I, I mean two I, I, Emmys. I, I, I've checked through his website. It's pretty professional looking. So it seems like he does a mix now of casting sessions as well as doing these uh, in person workshops. Or actually right now he's doing online only workshops. Dude, we should go to a, a workshop there. with him. So, well, I'm interested because I think that one of the strong suits of this movie was not just the acting, but in particular the directing and knowing you could tell that Hal, who was directing, knew what he could get out of his actors. There's well, lots and, of unin- and his crew. Yes, definitely. There's lots of uninflected shots. Mm-hmm. in this movie that i think informed the story a lot more than the acting sometimes does which yeah. is really it's symbolic of really good directing work and, you know? and the the use of music in this movie which i think i mean i i have to imagine clive barker had some had some hands on this movie but it this feels like one of those films where you had a a, a producer who has a strong strong sense of story and t- and like atmosphere which i think clive does super well it's the best thing about the hellraiser movies is like the atmosphere and the kind of mood and zhuzh you get but like you said ben like he extracted every single thing he could out of the actors the crew the music the cinematography it is weirdly perfect it really is the 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 smartest part of this whole movie is that they kept the budget in check. Minimal. This is one of the smartest movies I've ever seen made. We can start to deep dive into it. The whole yeah. idea of the plague, it's sort of a takeoff village of the dam, but it, it's it's yeah. taken a bunch of things and it's become its own sort of amalgamation, which really yeah. helps it stand apart. The conceit of the movie here, 10 years ago, every single child across the earth falls into a comatose vegetative state yep and twice a day every single child who's i think they said 17 and younger right it was like a specific age there because there are two characters later in the movie that were like two days too old 
Right. And and they're the they're like the last children. It's like very children of men esque. Yes. For the next ten years, in a vegetative state the whole time. Even but if twice like a day, newly born children are born at, in a comatose state. Yeah. But they have these horrific, awful seizures mm-hmm. twice a day. And because of that, over ten years, the entire world has changed. Schools are closing down because there's no new children to teach. Playgrounds are a thing of the past. They're all dilapidated. It's like the it's like the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street when they go back to Springville and Freddy's dead and there's just no kids. It's yes, like that, but it's the whole world. And one thing, Ben, to your point about the world being different, and I think the movie does this super, super well as its use of TV and media, yes. where the like the news report going on which comes across extremely believable and not cheesy. And I mean that genuinely is yeah. they're talking about how like countries are making it illegal to have kids, how it's against the law, how they're restricting birthing and abortions and all of this stuff across the world because of the comatose kind of disease, uh, inexplain- unexplained event. And the way we're introduced to this whole thing is incredibly well done in that opening scene which is where Ben and I were just godsmacked or gobsmacked. Well, because because you're gobsmacked. Because you're introduced to it the same way that the father of this child Mm -hmm. in the opening of the movie is introduced to it, where all of a sudden there's something wrong with his child at night. He picks him up. He takes him to the hospital. And all of a sudden you're in the hospital and it's overrun with parents who have children that are doing the exact same thing and everyone's freaking out and amazing pacing choices in this scene as well perfectly timed you see on the television this guy holding his child is is looking for updates and they say oh oh we've just got an update that that something new is happening to the children. And all of a sudden he turns around and all of the children are starting to seize up in time with the television report. Yeah. You, you get, you hear breaking news and then you see the breaking news thing happening. And the, the, they're how ridiculous I'm going to, I'm going to verbally describe to you what this opening scene is. And it sounds like it should be really cheesy and bad. But somehow it's incredibly genuine. It's yeah. well shot. It looks like everyone is enjoying themselves who's part of it. But that means that they're actually truly performing it. So yeah. as Ben said, there's a dad. His kid falls in, is, is in a coma. He runs to the hospital and he's like, see my child. And the lady's like, oh, come on, get in line. And, and the camera slow pans. And, and you see a hallway of parents with limp children in their arms all just completely limp, dead weight, passed out. And there's like 30 people. The crowd is packed. Everyone's standing there together. Everyone looks distressed and freaked out. And it's just kids laying around, young child actors left and right. And then, as Ben says, the news report hits. And then they all go into a seizure. And all of the parents put their kids on the ground or supporting their heads like they're actually having seizures. As the camera pulls back through the hallway and you see all of the kids system like simultaneously seizing on the ground and it should be dumb it should be cheesy and stupid and somehow and some magic that scene is captivating it it, and something ben and i kept saying was if the movie just commits to what it's doing right now and doesn't make it 
It doesn't make it pointless or stupid or contradict itself. It's going to work. And then it had that that exact same type of moment happen like six times in this yeah. movie. Yeah, and, and, and not only that, but the movie really managed to subvert our expectations mm-hmm. as well, too, which is awesome because in the second part of the movie, all of a sudden, exactly 10 years later, the children wake up and they're acting as some sort of zombie-like force where yeah. over the last 10 years, they've become incredibly powerful and strong inexplicably. Well, the seizures and, were making their muscles into super muscles. Yeah, the seizures were making them superhuman, essentially. So now you have this army of superhuman children, adults, which are off killing the entire world. I I, I don't know if maybe (laughs) because we've just and we're still going through COVID. I, I don't know if maybe that's helped this movie's perception and in the idea of that this is a world encompassing event. Maybe the fact that in 2006, there really hadn't been anything like that in a long time. So it was harder for people to wrap their minds around, but having experienced COVID and seeing this in comparison, I was like, wow, I can really relate to this. And what I really love too is conceptually, right? It's, I, I always say that the best horror movies or the best horror movie villains come from things that you really can't avoid as long as it's handled well of course yeah. bye bye man did not do that but i love the concept of nightmare on elm street you have to go to sleep sometimes what happens when your dreams are trying to kill you that's awesome setup yeah, for a movie simple this simple and beautiful. is what happens if every single child on the planet falls into a vegetative state they don't even die they no. fall into a strange vegetative state what happens to the world? I mean, that's one of the most interesting concepts for a movie I've heard in a it's, really long time. It's the setup for so many like sci-fi dystopian stories. Like something yeah. similar to that, like whether people stop being able to have children, all the children disappear. You know, this kind of notion that the one of the ways to really affect the entirety of humanity in a very heady, very global scale is affect every child. And it does that so well. And it's global, but we never see the whole thing. It doesn't do the zombie movie thing where you're like, they show you New York City. No, it stays in the small town that we're given. And we follow this character, James Vanderbeeks, whose story really doesn't matter. But he's a vessel because he's just kind of there being like, what the the fuck is going on? Essentially through his eyes, more or less. Yeah, and and the beak is a, a national goddamn treasure in this movie. He, he really, really cares somehow. Yeah, yeah and, no, his, his performance is really good. And, and I also think that I really think the majority of the success of this movie comes down to the directing. Mm-hmm. Because in a regular sci-fi horror movie, and I would know because I've seen practically all of them. Yes, it's true. Like they would layer stuff onto oh. this. On a regular sci-fi original movie, you'd be seeing clips of people from other countries are attacking. Yep. It's like it's not about that. It's about this one isolated incident about what's happening and well, in in embracing the horror of just this one isolated incident makes it scarier because it's like, this isn't even, this isn't even 
one trillionth of, of what's happening yeah. around the world right now and in in honing in on this with just the characters we know it makes it feel more personal and, and well, i really like that directing choice and, and there's another thing I, I i will say to that same point is i'm pretty sure this movie was shot on film because it doesn't have that like 2006 like digital film thing where it's stuck in it was, 480p yeah, it was definitely not shot on digital yeah and it looks incredible i mean for what it is it the movie looks timeless it uses the time period it's set in beautifully and yep. unlike and I, I think this is something that a lot of horror gets wrong especially this type of horror making making it so that the isolation and the confine of the story is justifiable so yes. a lot of zombie movies like night of the living dead and dawn of the dead like the way they isolate the characters and what makes those movies so captivating is the isolation is believable and something very cool they do in the plague is that when the children wake up we find out that they're actually a hive mind and they deliver that exposition well without yep. ever beating you over the head with it and they actually have it make sense as the story goes on is that every time one of the children around the whole world learns something, they all learn it. So everyone's like getting ready to get in their cars and run away. And then one kid somewhere in the world, you don't see it happen, learns how to break cars. So all of them know, oh, take out all the cars. And then a kid learns how to well, shoot. So then they well, all get guns. So, so quick clarification, there needs to be some level of of knowledge amongst the collective i think because there are these two characters who are who are a boy and girl who were just yeah they're 19 past at the start the threshold. of the movie yeah they were just past the threshold so they didn't turn into the zombie children but they, because they they're spend time with the kids to make them feel loved yeah but because they're so young uh the super kids identify them as being one of their own and not even though they attack a number of them it isn't until later in the movie where they truly realize that they're not one of them it's not until the the final 15 like the final ending ending sequence of the movie which is great right but it does take some time for Mm -hmm. the collective to be able to to figure that out or understand it yeah, it's very it it does the hive mind thing really well. Yeah, the collect because there's no individuality amongst all of the kids outside of moments where it's like prescribed. It has it has almost that children of the corn esque feel to it's, it where it's there's pretty, a leader, but it's all one entity anyway. It's very similar to the Borg in Star Trek. Yeah, if the Borg existed in a non sci fi setting, it's they use very mm-hmm. similar beats to the borg yeah the the person who wrote this movie i mean how masonberg clearly and teal minton let's not forget teal um clearly had like a love of like old school sci-fi in order to pull off this story um angle appropriately because it never feels forced or ham-fisted it feels genuine like they genuinely understood the type of movie they were writing and so the, the when it comes across on screen, it's never patronizing. And it, the movie's only an hour and 28 minutes long, and it doesn't feel short, and it never feels long. It is expertly paced as well. And I think a lot of that you said goes down to the filming and the directing, because the movie just keeps going. 
Yeah, that it felt, just it's based flowing. really well because I I never even felt like the movie kept going as in it was a fast pace. Yeah, it was 100%. just properly paced. Like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is and, and there are a number of quote unquote set pieces in the mm-hmm. movie, but because it's so basic, it, it's what is what is, in many movies would be considered a very small throwaway thing ends up meaning a lot more. And one of my favorite scenes is there is a police officer, his wife, and they capture their daughter. Oh, yeah. Who was born uh, too young and ended up becoming one of the super children. And she's tied up. So he goes off with the main group to discuss plans. And his wife goes back out to her child and unties her because she can't under she can't come to terms with the fact Mm-hmm. That that's not her daughter, which I also really like because that's something that would probably happen in a situation like this. It's oh, dramatic 100%. for a movie, but because this is such a dramatic, far-reaching concept, I'm like, that's I believe that that would happen. And and, and it's and it's a scene when you watch the scene, it's so carefully directed where everything's just given its time. Yeah. The scenes are there's not the camera's not whipping around. It's not right. it's not trying to show you anything. It's just going from face to face, slowly getting closer and closer as you realize what's about to and, happen. And and, and we see here that Hal really understands acting mm-hmm. where she's just untying her. The acting is fine, but it's it's not, you know, I didn't look up the actresses' names afterwards. No offense to them, but they were fine. Then it cuts back it's to D her Wallace. husband. It cuts back to her husband. He just hears something. He goes back out. And what do we see? His daughter unleashed, racing towards him while he sees his dead wife lying on the ground. So he has to shoot his daughter dead point blank after his daughter just killed his wife and her mother. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's one of those things where like... That's that's so incredibly done. The effect they use to show that she's dead isn't wonderful. And the simple logic and understanding a story that a person two rooms over would have heard this happened. Right. And would have gone to check it out. He had his gun drawn already. Like there was no stupidity in the action. And and then oh. and then instead of holding on his reaction of, oh my god, I killed my daughter. No. The other group arrives. They go, oh, my God. He just turns to them. Boom. Shoots himself. Yeah. And, and, and Super powerful stone moment. Cold. The, stone yeah, this is, cold. This this is a moment that should be schlocky and dumb in any movie. Any right. other five stars under 50 movie would have taken this scene and shat all over it. And I think this is where you get the sensibility of Clive Barker coming in. The, the the fact that he kills himself after doing that and seeing what happens is like very much in line with the tone and pressure of a, of a guy like Clive Barker because he wants that true and, story yeah. on the screen. And that happens. And it is, again, this was one of those moments where Ben and I were sitting there going, there's no way this is going to end the right way. Like, this is where the movie goes off the rails. This is where it's going to like edge into a bad time. And then he shot himself in the head and we were like, oh God, we're here. We're there. Let's go. Yeah. The, the, um, I think the real art of this, Mm -hmm. it it really expresses the art of filmmaking and its (laughs) purest form. Yeah. 
where in theory you can have a good film without good acting in it. Oh you yeah. You can have a good movie without actors. You can just get regular people. Technically, you can evoke emotion just by telling people, "Hey, make this motion," and cutting that with other things around it. That's pretty much what this scene is. The mm-hmm. guy doesn't act at all. He just stares at them blankly, pulls out a gun and shoots himself. But with everything else around it, it's so powerful and effective. And I think this movie gets lost in the shuffle because back in 2006, we had a glut of zombie movies and people Uh. were thinking of this as a zombie movie. Whereas this isn't a zombie movie. This is an apocalypse movie, if if anything else. This is more like 2008's The Happening than it is like Night of the Living Dead. Yes. But it's it, better than the happening. Also, it's substantially for all my, better. Also, for all my Clive Barker fans, I like this I, movie more than Hellraiser. Yeah, you can go fuck yourself. No, I I legitimately like this movie more I, than Hellraiser, and I think I, it was paced better than Hellraiser. Also, all right. I I I I will I will admit that this is the third best Clive Barker movie. Uh, I don't think it's better than Hellraiser, but. It's the best it's the best produced Clive Barker movie because he did not produce Hellraiser he wrote and directed. Um, though though the the world at large would disagree and they would say it was Brendan Fraser's uh, 1998 Oscar award-winning Gods and Monsters which we'll we'll need to watch later. Well, Brendan Fraser's pretty dope. So so he he can yeah. stay up there if he yeah, wants but this to. Is, this is up there. This actually you know movie this is actually very similar to in it's surprisingly well executed pacing and delivery is uh 1992's Candyman, which was another film mm, produced yeah, which is another movie. clive barker presents or a clive barker film was Candyman based on one of his short stories and it has that same like better than it should be atmospheric like delivery that's so believably done that it became a classic and yeah. like you said ben this movie just slipped through because of the movies around it. And and, and I, it's, he didn't do too many movies after this, like you said, Ben, but he's done some other gems like Midnight Meat uh like Midnight Meat Train, which is a wild movie that Ben and I will talk about one day. It's it's truly amazing how much they're able to get done and mm-hmm. how much they're able to evoke with so little. The yeah. the the middle third of the movie, which is once again great great idea of keeping the story going. The middle third is that James Vanderbeek and his friend, who's kind of a dick, they like have to oh, go. You mean Kip, by, played by Joshua yeah. Close, yeah, and and they... the and the female lead Ivan Milovochkich. Yeah, they yep. have to save Mila's character because mm-hmm. she works at a hospital, which only is for taking care of children there's an entire floor of a bunch of children on these beds that they're strapped to and they're being fed through an iv there's a great kind of like a covid ward yeah there's a great scene that foreshadows the rest of the movie early on Mm -hmm. where she's daydreaming at her computer next to all these children and you see all of their heads turn to face her and she looks up and 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 they're they haven't done it but just that sort of daydream feels like something that you would actually experience if you had that job. And it was very unsettling in spite of being mm-hmm. so simple. 
and I, th- I think I was going to say, just like you, you said, Ben, that, that building she's in, that hospital, it <coughs> is important to the story. And I think one of the big advantages of this movie, like a In the Mouth of Madness, the town itself is given enough time and presence that it is a character in the yeah. film. And the town makes sense. The layout of the town, where they go in the town, it all makes sense. Very similar to Children of the Corn, where the layout and and the, the dimensions of the town itself play an important role in driving the narrative. And the way they film the characters going through the crowd, like there's... There's times there's like a scene midway near the middle end of the movie where James Vanderbeek just like runs down an alleyway. But then instead of the instead of the shot like cutting to like the main street, that alleyway actually leads into the main street of the downtown of the town. Yep. And instead of having a cut there, you have a pan that reveals the rest of the street before James runs down the hall, run, runs down the road. And you're like, this is a real town. And it, it reinforces the tone and the mood of the movie over and over again, making it real. Yes. So the middle bit of the movie is them trying to get out of the hospital, which is a really good location for this. I really enjoyed it. And then after that, we have uh, we, we actually had a great scene with the Kip character, which is oh, another yeah. one of my favorites, where him and all of these people he's trying to save all of the other hospital workers he's trying to save they're stuck inside a room and the only way for them to survive is to go down this chute so they tie a bunch of blankets together and they start going one at a time down as this door is being broken down right mm-hmm. they get down and it turns out there's even more zombie children yep. down there so Kip starts racing up the tunnel. He gets back up top. He starts undoing the blanket because he hears something coming up quickly right behind him. He unfurls it just in time to see it was one of the nurses. Yep. <laughs> and she falls down and dies. Yeah. Such and- a brutal death. I mean, really poignant and an understandable situation to be in. Yeah. And Kip makes it out of there and keeps and keeps going in the movie, which is what, what he happens. He does. But then one of the children twists his leg around in a circle. Once again, yeah. another really brutal. good, brutal, cheap gag. And uh, he doesn't make it forever. And it's, but... it's, it's good. It's good in a movie like this, which, you know, it is unsurprising for 2006 horror where the ma- one of the male leads is saved by a female character. Yeah, that's and true. She com- and she comes across as the strong, believable character, which is great. Yeah. Women are actually represented really well in this movie, which I didn't think about until now. And I yeah. guess that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does it without it being obvious. But then her knowledge as a doctor is important in yeah. saving Kip. And then we get at that that leads into the hospital scene that we talked about earlier. And, and we get an amazing scene later in the movie, not too far afterwards, where James Vanderbeek and the young male lead played by, I believe he doesn't have a picture on IMDb, so I can't remember his name. But the young male lead and James Vanderbeek have this like beautiful conversation about kind of the nature of what they're having to do. And how they are 
There's also like, that what they between... need to do to save each other, and and between Yip and the bald cop. Yes. Yeah, and I I really like that too because you've been going through the whole movie essentially in real time, mm-hmm. and he's just he they they turn to each other and they're like yeah, so what do you think this is I don't know maybe it's maybe it's a uh, yeah I, I heard it could be aliens whoa aliens well I don't think that yeah me neither you know it's this is a very basic yeah. cute conversation but it's the type of stuff you'd be asking it's a moment of levity yeah. in what's ultimately a really dark movie. And, and and it's and it's beautiful because like the the bald cop guy went when when Kip goes like, you know I I always thought it might be the alien there. He's like, wait really, like, you think it's aliens too? And it's such a genuine moment. Yeah. If if you watched if anyone's been following along in some of the movies we've been watching for the thirty one days in Halloween, I watched uh, Block Island Sound. And it has a very similar moment, which is probably the most endearing moment of that whole movie, where there's an alien conspiracy theorist that's portrayed like a modern alien conspiracy theorist. And the moment someone's like, your idea might be right. He gets genuinely excited, just like this cop does in the movie, who yep. I actually can name, who's Bradley Saletskis, who plays Deputy Nathan Burgundy, which is a great name. for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it's a beautiful, genuine, just kind of cute moment between the two before the children show back up and they raise guns together. And I, I the, think the the only part of the movie that I wish they could have done differently is that the last third of the film is them saying, hey, we got to get to the military base because mm-hmm. they'll be able to protect us. And I feel like they should have introduced that back earlier yeah, in the film, and, and they didn't. But um, I, I, I think the characters it, are so confused, they weren't even thinking about it. I, I mean, you're not wrong. It, it's, it, it didn't really detract from my enjoyment of the movie. But the fact <laughs> that they threw that on there made me think, all right, everyone's dying. Yeah. Or, or, so, or, or like nobody's making it to the base. That was too thrown in. There's also another point that a lot of people might consider problematic in this towards the end. And that is the female doctor essentially snaps because they kill Kip, her friend, and she goes, I don't want to let them live. I don't care about going to safety. I just want to shred people, essentially. She goes into murder hobo mode. And the uh, young female heroine agrees with her. And the young male heroine's like, I, I'm not leaving her behind. And yeah. so they go back in, and then James Vanderbeek has to save them. It, well, because they're like, we it. gotta get the guns. Right. They they want to go get guns and weapons. It works enough. It's not the strongest storytelling in the movie, but I do think that given the circumstances, it's understandable enough. To not be like, eh, you know, that, that's well, the mulligan this movie gets. But it, it does it does do that well where when that female cop does eventually shoot one of the kids. And I think this movie, a big, a big down, not, it's not bad thing in the movie, but it hurt it was how brutal and practical the effects were. Because you get like a two minute shot after she shoots this kid of him slowly choking on blood as like an open wound prosthetic, just kind of like pumps blood slowly over his chest but she stands there like mortified and just just like utterly like shocked by the fact that she did it 
And then she double taps the kid. Like James Vanderbeek's like, oh shit, you just shot that kid. And then he's like, he's like, all right, let's get out of here and leave this one to die. And she walks up, just bam, like in yeah. shock, I, and then throws her gun away. It's like, what the hell? And that's when she sneezes, like, we're yeah, gonna, I, we're killing everything. See, I did like that scene, and I also feel like, in a way, her shooting him again was mm-hmm. her coming to terms with the fact in her own mind that they're not people, that that they're. Yeah. Alien. That, that she can compartmentalize them as animals or something non-human. So it it wasn't a huge negative, but I yeah. did think that was the weakest part of the storytelling. But it, it where... does ju- it does justify to me though the hive mind mentality because the kids have learned to use guns now, and she's like making the argument like we're never gonna get out of here without true. weapons. That's even true. though even though that mentality is fueled by her trauma of her friend yeah. getting murdered, it's also, revenge. Can we get a big shout out to as soon as they leave town, they enter a grassy green field, which is beautiful yeah. cinematography and planning in advance. Yeah, they go, they go to this like house out in the woods and then we get the and then we get the letter and all the stuff about like the esoteric end of the movie. Yeah. So the esoteric end of the movie, let's talk about that. There is a message that the hive mind of the children repeat out. And, and Matt, I feel like this is as good a time as any to talk about it. And this is what the hive mind of the children whisper. The kingdom of heaven is near. And should anyone offer their soul to one of these children, he will through death deliver those who through fear were subject to slavery all their lives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um <laughs> It, it there's like there's this weird undertone where the children are able to absorb the souls of so, of willing victims and give them like a painless death and that kind of like sets the kids back and like they stop like attacking so like when we get when, when we get a, a fantastic death scene between the two young male teen leads here uh, one of the best shots in the movie is where they just pull back as they're sitting there bleeding to death from the um, same but, wound huh the the same wound yeah, in I the did. same spot on their bodies yeah and they save each other in the scene as they kill as they die together <coughs> and this leads into james vanderbeek being like oh i just need to sacrifice my soul to the kids and like everyone's about to die and, and, and again against expectations he like gets the female the other female lead to like let it happen and she goes to like a happy place and he lets the children take his soul because he's like, ah, I'm one of you. And then they just disappear. <laughs> and so, then they, it's like a very, very Lovecraftian moment. Yeah, it really is. The, so, so let's parse through this a bit yeah. here. Okay. Cause there's, there's essentially three bits. Yeah. The kingdom of heaven is near. Okay. So heaven is close. And Aliens. should anyone offer their soul to one of these children? So, okay. So, Heaven is close, and if you give your soul... Willingly. Willingly. Okay. He will through death... Okay, so that means that we'll say God in this instance. Yeah, or the, the, the a big entity that's controlling these children. Yes, yes. From, from you doing this, deliver those who through fear were subject to slavery all their lives... Now, I interpret this as something satanic. Uh, what? Yeah. 
Oh, I get Satan all vibes right, from all this. All right, hit, so, hit, hit me, hit me with the left hand path anal- analysis here. It's saying that heaven is close, and if anyone willingly gives themselves up to the children and thus whoever is controlling them, through your death, he will deliver those who through fear were subject to slavery. I think those who through fear were subject to slavery is an indictment of religion. Because religion oh. is based off of fear, right? So it's it's challenging religion directly. Hmm. I, I, I also see that. you're having to willingly give up your soul to the children, and thus whatever their hive mind is. Well, and because and the aspect you, that their children is really important too. Well, well, because because if you think about it too, since they are a hive mind, it's very possible that they're working with the mind of whoever is controlling them. So not only well, are you offering themselves to the children, you're directly offering yourself up to whoever. Well, you're joining the hive mind. Right. You're 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 allowing the you're you're willfully joining the collective and becoming part yes. of of this correct earth because there's a there's a scene early in the film where the two young teens who are alive are like they're like why is this happening and they're like well, the world we were giving these kids was terrible. And so they chose not to live in it. Like that was like yes. the notion of like why this is because everything is bad and they didn't want to, they didn't want to live in it. And someone even says foreshadowing the plot of the movie, like what's going to happen when they wake up? Well, they might take the world back and they very much do. So I, I, I see kind of where you're coming with it, with that tone. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I don't you know, know take, how else to take it. <laughs> t- t- taking back a world that was ruined, that, that that was ruined, and that you were prevented from re-entering again, that's mm-hmm. also very you know heaven and hell dynamic. There, I, I I think that if we're looking at the concept of, and I'm glad that they left it ambiguous. That yeah, that they helps needed to a ton, but you know, you can interpret this as whatever happened to the children allowed them all to on their own individually create this hive mind. Maybe it was some sort of spore that got, that just happened to spread and no one noticed it. And all of the children below a certain age fell That's, into it, this. It's and it's pure permanent. magic, <laughs> but not pure magic, but just some sort of like a, like a cancer that just spreads a lot more, mm-hmm. you know, and it just so happens they're in this ethereal plane where they're all able to develop this hive mind. That's an option. It could be aliens are controlling them, like maximum overdrive. It could be yeah. that it's something satanic e, which I think the, I, I think the quote lends credence to that. But I appreciate how open ended it is because well, even the characters in the movie don't seem to know until we get to the end where James Vanderbeek offers himself up, and then what I think is even more interesting is the true end where the female lead is surrounded by the children. They finally show up after disappearing. Yes, they finally show up at her place. She looks them in the eyes confidently and she goes back into her house and they leave her alone. So what does well, that mean? Well, does, and does, it, does that mean that she's not been subject to slavery through her life because she hasn't been living through fear? Or I think I, to me, I took it as that that similar to James Vanderbeek, she's accepting it. She is willfully allowing herself to transcend by accepting what what's going to happen and accepting the transition. 
And it does. I'm, I'm going to find the quote here. Um, and, and it'll be seamless to our listeners. But the earlier in the movie, they established that James Vanderbeek's character is reading the book Grapes of Wrath. And he has this great scene talking to the father about how that book is really important. And it's how it's about hope. And it's about the fact that there's like a chance in the world. And the little kid, the leader who took the soul from James Vanderbeek, has the book in his pocket. In his back pocket as the movie's ending. Almost as if the, the, the hive mind now has that book as part of their collective consciousness. Well the, well, the hive mind now has hope, which is also yeah, something... Yeah, because they have Vanderbeek, because he w- gave himself willingly. Right, yeah. Well, well, it could also be interpreted, Matt, that because the one kid read the book, the hive mind now has the... now has emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, they have relearned well, I, to I, have hope. And I think that's an important part of what the the that quote at the end is, is because he will through death deliver those who through fear were so to slavery other lives. He gives himself to the collective, and I think that helps the collective grow because they were given a willful soul. They weren't taking the soul; they were they were given one. Right, exactly. So it takes the hive mind from something soulless. Mm-hmm to something that does have that so maybe and and maybe too it could be where she's or they're able to understand that she's not ready yet Mm -hmm. you know we we don't know that either maybe there's some sort of understanding that you reach with the hive mind where you can be like no i'm not ready yet and then when you are ready you'll give yourselves to them as as long as you're not being unwillful it's it's, not a slave anymore yeah, I, I like this ambiguity. You know, what are you being a slave to? What, what does it consider you being a slave to? Well, and yeah, and and it, and, the, and the using the book example too is the 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 father character talking to James Vanderbeek sees that he's reading the book and he's like, oh, I thought it was just about the Great Depression. That's all he says about the book. It's all he can think about it as. And James Vanderbeek character who kind of is that foil for that exact change is no the story's about family it's about these things which is really what this movie's about it's not about the the plague and the disease which is the surface level analysis it's about hope and family and what it means to not be stuck you know not yeah. not over not over analyzing necessarily what the people have done but what they're trying to you know get across to you and, and like also through, the, and also giving the, the book, he like helps that character change. Yeah, and also the importance of all of these aspects of your life, you know, children, family. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, he right right before right at the end of the first act, before things jump off, he gives him that book, and he and he says it's about hope. Hands him the book, and then that kind of like that that last scene of humanity between them before. The children awake launches into the rest of the narrative and it ends with that book kind of telling you like kind of at the very end of the thing saying it, there is hope there's hope at the end of the story which is a very weird you know for a movie like this a very interesting direction to take it where like in a movie like 28 days later the happening the like there's hope moment is like oh it's all done and in this movie the hope moment is oh we've embraced the outcome yeah which is very lovecraftian very 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 hp lovecraft yeah i i like it more though because in 
in movies like 28 Days Later, I feel like the hope spot is just like a, all right, like we, we need to have a little good thing happen here. And all right, we're back to dismal. Well, yeah, it, Whereas it, 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 this your is hope like, spot. right. And then it takes it away. Whereas this yep. is, we have literally given you nothing good. This whole movie, <laughs> brutal death. Everyone has died except for this one woman. And yet we're going to give you some hope. Boom, take yeah. it. And, and it works. Yeah, and, and it's justifiable that she's, like, happy and not, like, dreading this ending. She's like, oh, I get it now. I, yeah. I've, I've come to understand. And you can't as the, as the viewer because you're not in the story. You're not, you're not there enough to get the tra- right. transition, which is a very, again, like, the, the entity is beyond our direct comprehension. So, like, you kind of just have to accept what's happening. And, uh, and, and with that, I feel like we've done not a, not a thorough breakdown of the movie, but I feel like we've done a pretty thorough analysis of, of what this movie does so great. Yeah, well, it's currently standing at a 17% audience approval on Rotten Tomatoes with no reviews. And that is, yeah. that this is movie, flat out wrong. Yeah, this movie is ahead of its time. It, it, it should have not, if it had come out a decade later... I think it would have gotten a lot more attention. Absolutely. Um, this movie deserves your attention. Give it a viewing. Give it your like give it your full attention. Watch this yeah. sit down and watch this movie late at night and you can be as you can be as sick as I was at the time or as as ready to go as as Ben is right now and you're going to get like a a genuinely good experience. If you type The Plague into Rotten Tomatoes, it doesn't even come up as the listed movies. Yeah, it's got to be Clive Barker's The Plague. Yeah. Um, but and, uh, for Ben, what is your what is your official rating for this movie? We've had one middle of the road. Well, two middle of the road now. We had one which we gave our lowest possible review score of a half star. Piece and of- this week, Matt, for the first time, I'm giving this the full marks five stars for five stars under 50 and i am i am a hundred percent there with you this is a full five stars under 50 movie this is we have now both we have give we have gotten both of our standard setters we have the house at the end of the street and we have clive barker's the plague all other movies that we watch for this series will have will fall somewhere in between those movies unless one of them manages to topple the other but it's gonna be difficult for any movie to come up and really surprise me and and make me feel as joyfully happy as this movie did yeah this movie diverted expectations a lot where you where we were watching it and i feel like we kept asking each other is this movie actually really good yeah (laughs) we We kept waiting for it to be bad yeah, we kept waiting for the movie to be bad, and we're just enjoying it in spite of that fact, because it's a really well-done movie. So, Hal Masonberg, I feel like, deserves a spot in our Five Stars Under 50 Hall of Fame. Yeah. Only one theatrical movie, one and done, and it was really freaking good, and literally the entire world disagrees and the entire world is wrong yes 
dead wrong. And we we yeah. need to talk to this man. We need we I want if if I ever have a chance to talk to James Vanderbeek, I'm only gonna ask him about this movie. Because it's better than almost anything else he's done in his career as well. And the fact that this man did one thing and he did it perfectly deserves to be honored. Yeah, he literally mic dropped this. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he did the Marty McFly from Back to the Future where it's like your kids are going to love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly. what he did. He is the Marty McFly of cinema. This this is the type of movie that needs to be shown at the horror the horror festivals Ben Absolutely. and I have been talking about. You put this on as a midnight special, and you will have a captivated audience, especially yeah, if horror be going fans. Wild, yeah. And, and this is of of Clive Barker's films. Clive Barker has directed, written, and pro- or produced fourteen movies, and I've heard of almost every single one of them except for this one. We've all, yep. except for his first two, which were nothing movies that he wrote, but Hellraiser, the Hellraiser series, Nightbreed even has a lot of attention around it, even though it flopped horribly. Candyman is a legacy, just got remade. Lord of Illusion is a well-known movie for at least people who like that kind of near noir thing. Gods and Monsters won a fucking Academy Award, and he that's the only movie ever executive produced. And then, and then we have his 2000s run. Of just movies that almost no one's heard of. And I think no one's heard of this one the most. Besides maybe his 2020 anthological horror film, Book of Blood. But we're going to get to that one. I'm so happy. I feel like yeah. after The Last House on the Street, this sort of saved the five stars under 50 concept. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, were, we that were in they, a pit. They are out here. They are out there. Movies like this Our quest are is sitting possible. there. And Amazon Prime, and and there's a treasure trove waiting to be discovered. What will we find next time? We'll find out then. And it might not have been good the first time around, and it wasn't house. good the second time around. The last, the last house on the street. It really wasn't great the third time around. WrestleManiacs. But Matt, I feel like today, if nothing else before has shown you. Today really proved that sometimes the fourth times the charm. Good night, everybody. Good afternoon and good morning. Follow us, talk to us, love us. Brennan, you suck. Love you, Brennan. You talk to me, you challenge me, I'll fight you. Yeah, so this movie is produced by Clive Barker. This was one of his last movies he produced or worked on before he died about a decade later. It stars Brad Hunt, Ivana Milicevic, and... Um, Clive Barker's not dead. He's not? No. What? What? Oh, I thought he was dead, bro. He He, <laughs> he produced five movies after this. And is writing the script and is attemptively writing the script for a Hellraiser remake. Okay. <clears throat> um, so <laughs> wind it back. So Clive Barker, who's very much alive, produced this movie. <laughs>